Hello and welcome to another edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. You know, Bubba, when when you think about a week and you think to yourself, 20 hours of Rick and Bubba for me is just not enough. I got to have more. I got to have more. <laughs> uh, Rick and Bubba University, the podcast is for you. Uh, it is a little different. It's a unique podcast every week where we uh, get to do long-form interviews with people as opposed to sometimes on the live show when they're kind of in little 10-minute segments. And today, Bubba, we are excited. Uh, I mean, we have got uh, a Hall of Famer, uh, Tom Glavins, with us, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2014. He and Maddox went in uh, the same time. Also, Frank Thomas, uh, he a 305-game winner, two Cy Young Awards, 1995 World C- Series champion and MVP, uh, he's in the Atlanta Braves Hall of Fame, a 22-year career with the Braves and the Mets. He also does some broadcasting with the Braves, and the list just goes on and on. On and on. On and on. Welcome to Rick and Bubba University, Tom Glavin. Tom, welcome, sir. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you guys for having me. You know, Tom, we're excited about having you on. Um, I mean, there were many, many years that our family ate our dinner on TV trays so we could watch the Braves game. I mean, you guys were like family, it seemed like, for a decade. I mean, it was just part of our every afternoon activity. I mean, we didn't even know Wheel of Fortune was on. <laughs> I can't, Hey, that's you know what? That's smart of you. It's way better programming. But, uh, <laughs> no, you know what? It's funny. I think there are times where, um, you know, I forget uh, the, the broad reach that we had, so to speak, uh, particularly my first couple of years uh, in the big leagues when we were on TBS, um, you know, people all over the country watched us. And, and, and there were times where you'd kind of forget that. And we would go on road trips and go into cities and the following that we had uh, on the road in some places or even in the hotels, it was, it was just unbelievable. But uh, it had everything to do with, uh, you know, we were on TBS. So we were to some extent, uh, if the Cowboys were America's team, we were America's team, you know, 1A. Uh, we had a lot of people watching us. So, uh, and, and I think especially in the Atlanta area, um, you know, it, it, you sense it a little bit when you meet people uh, because people really do feel like they know you. Uh, and it has everything to do with how much they've watched you on TV, how much they've watched your team play, uh, things that they've heard about you on broadcast. So there is that sense of, uh, family, that sense of, uh, of knowing you. And, and, you know, I got to tell you, um, it, it's, uh, we, we, or at least I, um, have found that I'm really big with the grandmother crowd. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know why, uh, but you I can't tell Hicks. you, <laughs> I can't tell you how many, you know, grandmothers I run into that, uh, that was their thing watching Braves, oh, yeah. uh, every yep. night and they still do. And I just love hearing that. Well, uh, you know, it, it was great, and we have to give Ted Turner credit, uh, whether you care for his politics or not. What a great idea to put a, a local TV station on a nationwide uh, satellite feed, get convinced cable operators to run it, and then get a baseball team and put on there. What a great call. No, look, he, he, was, uh, he was a visionary. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we hear – we hear the term thrown around sometimes that, uh, you know, people's people were a little bit before their time or their ideas were a little bit before the times. I think that idea was certainly one of those ones that was a little bit before the times. I mean, he had a vision and, and, uh, like you say, who would have thought you'd take a local TV station, put it out there on a cable platform and, uh, everybody across the country could watch it. And, um, it seemed like kind of a crazy idea, but, uh, at the end of the day, it wasn't crazy at all. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty genius. 
Tom, let me let me ask this because a lot of people may not remember this, but you went to the Braves in the second round. I believe it was second round of the draft, but you had options. You almost played another professional sport. I did. Yeah, I tell you, as uh, as an eighteen year old, it was probably uh, probably two of the greatest weeks of my life uh, to be drafted in the NHL, and then you know a week later be drafted uh, in uh, in the Major League Baseball draft. I mean. It was pretty easy to dig myself uh, for those 10 days at 18 years old, I can tell you that. So uh, it was cool. I mean, it was um, it was a little bit of a stressful process because, um, you know, at the time I was going to college and I was I was going to college really to play hockey more than I was going to play baseball. But I was going to try and play the two sports. Um, and then once the drafts rolled around, you know, hockey's a little bit different. Um, when you get drafted in hockey, they own your rights for five years. So, mm. uh, the typical roadmap is you, you get drafted, you go to college. And then after your junior year of college, they kind of see where you're at and, and, uh, either try to sign you after your junior year or wait till graduations. But in baseball, the way the baseball draft works, you get drafted in June. And if you don't sign by the start of the next school year, you're done. Uh, they've lost you. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a much bigger incentive to sign uh, high draft picks in baseball. So uh, that kind of became uh, the process. Obviously, the Braves drafted me. They came after me uh, really hard to get me to sign. Um, and it really boiled down to, you know, was I willing to take a chance on baseball and give up a college scholarship? Uh, and I think at the end of the day, you know, I went through the process of pros and cons between hockey and baseball. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I settled on the fact that in baseball, I was a left-handed pitcher and I had a huge advantage in baseball because of that, uh, that I didn't possess in hockey. So I thought it was in my best interest to try and utilize that. And thank God it worked out. And it was the Kings, right? That drafted you the LA Kings. Yeah. The LA, yeah. The LA Kings. Yeah. 1984 fourth round so um you know i like to remind people uh i got drafted ahead of luke robitaille who is a hall of fame hockey player and i got drafted ahead of brett hull who's also uh, a hall of famer so clearly i would have been a hall of fame hockey player well i was gonna say tom you claim you made the right choice but my goodness we may never know what you could have done in hockey well, uh, I, it's fair to say my career lasted a lot longer in baseball than it would in hockey, and I definitely have more teeth left in my mouth than I would have had I gone to hockey. So. That's funny. I'm, I'm telling you, that, that, that is a brutal, brutal sport. Tom, when we were growing up, uh, we grew up close to Atlanta, just over the line in Alabama, and uh, we used to go watch Braves games back when Hank Aaron played. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was always good to see him play, but there wasn't a lot of victories back in those days. Uh, it, it was, oh, I mean, Tom. there really wasn't a lot of victories and, uh, it was kind of sad. And, you know, every now and then, if you were at the game, you thought you might get to get in to throw a, an inning of relief, you know, yeah, if you sure. look like you could do it. I mean, and, uh, so, but at what point did you realize that something was going on with the Braves, that it wasn't the same old, you know, oh, shucks, we got close, but y'all had something that was special. Was it when you realized it was April and you weren't out of it yet? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a big part of it, right? My, uh, you know, my first two. So I got called up in August of '87. So my first two full years, '88 and '89, uh, and even '90, really. Um, you know, we were generally mathematically eliminated by Memorial Day. So right. uh, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of suspense as it was related to the season. And, and listen, I can relate. Um, when I got to Atlanta, the only reason people really came to games was to watch Dale Murphy. Uh, oh, yeah. And that was, a, that was really about the only reason they had to come to a game. Because no, you're right. 
we weren't very good. So um, I think it started to turn the second half of 1990. Um, you know, when Bobby came in and took over, uh, and then Leo came in as the pitching coach, um, you know, we had a lot of the nucleus of what became uh, our teams was there in Atlanta. Uh, you know, I was there. Smoltzy was there. Avery was there. We had Blauser, Lemke. We had Ronnie Gant. We had David Justice. So, you know, all these pieces were starting to come. Um, and the second half of that year, we were a whole lot more competitive, particularly on the pitching side. I think our ERA the second half of the year uh, was almost two runs better than it was the first half of the year. Uh, so you could see things starting to come. The nucleus was there. Now, it wasn't anybody, myself included, uh, that would have said to you at that time, hey, uh, we're going we're gonna to win our division next year in 1991, and oh, by the way, we're going to rattle off 14 straight. Nobody ever would have thought that. I think we, when we went into that winter uh, and we got Terry Pendleton, we got Rafi Belliard, we got Sid Bream, you know, guys that could really play defense, uh, guys that came over from winning organizations and knew what it took to win, you know, we thought realistically we were going to be a competitive team. And by that, you know, getting back to a, a 500 or a little bit better and maybe, you know, somewhere in the middle of our division, which doesn't sound very lofty, but, you know, when you'd come off three straight 100 lost seasons and finished in dead last, it's a pretty big jump to think you're going to be a 500 ball club uh, and maybe finish third or better in your division. But, you know, listen, the, the stars aligned in 91. Uh, I think the development for all of us, um, ended up being quicker than the timetable. I think that anybody had for us, myself included. Uh, and then it was just one of those things that, um, you know, you hear it all the time in sports. Uh, if the, the, the more you have matchups in, in singular games where you have a clear favorite and an underdog and the longer that underdog stays in the game, then the more that underdog mm -hmm. thinks it can win. That was the case for us in 91. The more we stuck around, the more we started to believe in ourselves. And it really became that, you know, why not? Why, why can't we win? So what that we're young? So what that we're inexperienced? We're good. And, and we really thought from the second half on that we had a, a legitimate chance to win. And it, and it all fell into place. Was there a surreal moment in the second half of that league? A, a game you remember? Uh, a batter you remember that you went, hey, this is it. We've made the turn. There were a couple moments. I mean, you know, it, memory serves me. Um, we were we were right there with the Dodgers uh, going into the All-Star break. And then we had a bad week before the All-Star break. And, you know, I want to say we ended up uh, maybe seven or eight games back at the All-Star break, which was a little bit of a disappointment given that we were uh, so close going into that last week of, of the first half. Um, you know, and I remember vividly coming back for the start of the second half of the year uh, we had our, you know, team meeting before we're getting ready to start uh, the second half. And I remember vividly Bobby uh, saying to us, listen, you know, we're one good week away from getting ourselves right back into this thing. And and I'll be damned. We went out and won seven in a row. And I think the Dodgers lost six or seven in a row. And we were right there a game back uh, a week after the All-Star break. Uh, so that that's when it really started to set in that we had a chance. But uh, I think there was a series uh, that year. Um, where um, later that year where maybe, uh, you know, we, we'd beaten the Dodgers two out of three or something like that. And, and uh, you know, just, just that believability factor that, uh, again, because all the noise was that we were too young, the Dodgers were so experienced yeah. and had talent and this and that, and we just refused to believe it. And, and the more we beat them head to head, uh, the more it fed into our belief that we were going to win. 
Tom Glavin is our guest on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. We'll come back and we'll talk more with Tom Glavin when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast continues. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, you know you, you're you're maybe listening to this podcast right now on a pair of earbuds, but but my question is, are they Raycon earbuds? Because if they're not, you you probably pay too much for them. Uh, you probably look kind of silly the the way they're designed, uh, like something's hanging out of your ears. Uh, well, let me let's point you to the Raycon earbuds, and these have been a huge hit with all of you out there that support uh, the Rick and Bubba shows. Uh, and, and let me tell you this, when we, when you put these in, you'll, you'll realize pretty quick they're, they're made for comfort. You'll also notice that the price is about half what the other earbud companies are trying to charge you. And the, and the Raycon earbuds, they have uh, you know six hours of playtime. Uh, you, uh, you can unplug for a while. Uh, also, the, uh, the different styles are, are very chic. And again, they're designed for comfort. And, and the bass and the way it sounds when you're listening to music, you're not losing any quality when you're paying a lower price. And because you are listening to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, we're going to get you another 15% off. So, so here's what you need to do. Go to buyraycon, that's R-A-Y-C-O-N, buyraycon.com slash rickbubbapod. Buyraycon.com slash rickbubbapod, and we'll get you an additional 15% off. Uh, we, we love these. The audience loves these. And you're going to thank us for this. So go now. Uh, com slash Rick Bubba Pod. Tom Glavin, uh, Major League Baseball Hall of Famer, uh, with us on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. We've been talking uh, a little bit about the rise of the Atlanta Braves uh, there in the 90s and the dominance of the Braves in the 90s. So, so Tom, talking about that, and I know this has been discussed quite often, to, to have 14 divisional championships – and uh, when it, you know, I, I remember watching the, uh, the the behind the scenes documentaries on the '85 Bears, where where in football they said, "Man, our team was so good for us to have one Super Bowl is just how in the world did that happen?" Now I will tell you what I will take what you guys got to enjoy for a long period of time like that, and come away with um, you know a, a World C- C- Series championship as opposed to having a World Series championship and never being good. <laughs> I mean, because you won a lot of games, you were you were in the hunt every year. That's exciting. Do you and your teammates? Do y'all look back and go, man, we we should have walked away with more World Series championships? Um, you know, to a certain extent, um, I, I think that you can't help but think we we could have easily won at least one more. Uh, and I, but I think that that thought process is far different than uh, feeling like somehow because we only won one, it, it diminished the accomplishments exactly uh, of those fourteen division titles. And and you know, it's like I say to people all the time. Okay, yeah, I mean, we're disappointed we only won one World Series, but would you rather have what we did, where <laughs> essentially, uh, if you were a, a four-year-old kid in Atlanta in nineteen ninety-one, <laughs> you went through your entire school career uh, where the Braves were in the playoffs. Or would you rather have what Toronto did uh, and won back-to-back and they haven't done anything since? Or do what the Marlins have done, which where they've won a couple and then they've rebuilt three or four times in between. Um, as a sports fan, I would rather have my team have a chance every year. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's what I would rather have. And now if they win, that's, that's great, obviously, and you're disappointed when they don't. But I want my teams to have a chance. And, and for us, that's what it was about. And, and I think when you look back, 
at the World Series, um, really the only difference in us winning uh, in 1995 against Cleveland versus some of those other years was maybe a pitch yep. mm-hmm. or maybe an at-bat. And, and, and the margin for victory or defeat truly is razor thin. And some of it is just plain luck. I mean, it plays into it. But, um, you know, I look back at uh, the 91 series against Minnesota. Look, we could have easily yeah. won that series. You know, we, we had oh, yeah. our chances. Uh, you know, just it, you know, we weren't able to get that key hit when we had the bases loaded and nobody out or even mm. that key fly ball, right? Or um, if you don't have Ron Gant picked up off first base and tagged exactly. out. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Right, that was one of the craziest plays in all of baseball. Yeah, it really was. I mean, if we had uh, if we had video replay, we'd probably win yeah. that series, right? That's um, true. You That's know, true. Same, thing, same thing in 92 in Toronto um, against Toronto. You know, where, uh, you know, Ed Sprague hits that big home run in the ninth inning in game two where, you know, now we go to Toronto 1-1 uh instead of being up to nothing far different series if that happens i remember i lost game i think it was game four uh game three or game four um where uh pat borders hit a home run off the foul pole you know that ball goes foul i mean so there's all kinds of things like that um but then you look at when we won um you know we we made pitches when we need to make make pitches we got hits when we needed them uh, we had some key defensive plays. Uh, you know, the only one that I look back at with any regret whatsoever um, in terms of, you know, that's one that we let get away it was 96 against the Yankees, you know, to go up. We were there. To go up to New York yeah. and win two games in, on the road and come back and, and then essentially get swept. Um, you know, and we had a big lead in game three. Uh, it was game three or game four. I forget what it was. But, um, you know, one of those games, I think it was game four because game three I pitched and uh, we ended up getting beat. And I know in that game we had the bases loaded late uh, and weren't able to score. So, I mean, it, it, it's just little things, right? So it's not like you just go out there and you choke or you get beat. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. like I say, little things here and there that happened in 95 that just didn't happen those other years. Tom, I want to ask you about something that I know every Braves fan remembers as you guys were making this turn in 91. I believe it was 91. You're playing the Pirates for a chance to go to the World Series, which something that we, you know, was totally unbelievable to us that grew up. I just want to make that clear. And and Tom talked about (laughs) you people that grew up in the 14 years. You have no idea. Y'all have no idea. I mean, we we could not believe the Braves were, were like, we are good every year. I mean, I, we were looking, and I said, y'all don't understand this because I saw kids wasting it. I'm like, you don't understand. My Little League team would go see the Braves, and we would sit right behind home plate because the seats were available. Yeah, it was I a mean, different I mean, world. I mean, it was a whole different world. And like you said, my goodness, how many t- more promotions can we do with poor, poor Dale Murphy? Yeah. I mean, every single every – it's Dale Murphy bobblehead. It's Dale Murphy batting helmet. It's Dale Murphy bat. I mean – that's, I mean, y'all don't understand what we went through to get to this dominant era. Tom, let me ask you about the play. Sid Bream is rounding third base. He's not a speed merchant by any stretch. He's headed home. It had to be the longest 90-feet run oh, that yeah. I have. I remember holding my breath watching that play. What was it like from your vantage point trying to trying to get Sid home? I was screaming, drop the trailer. You know, let's get on <laughs> in course. there. You know? Yeah. No, look, it was, uh, yeah, it was 92. So 92. we were, uh, yeah, it was game seven. We were down. Uh, Doug Drabeck pitched a heck of a game that night. Um, you know, and by all accounts, there was, there was nothing. Uh, no, we had nothing going on. And there was no reason to believe that we were going to have the rally that we had in the ninth inning other than, uh, again, if my memory serves correctly, I think the leadoff hitter that inning 
ground ball to second base, and I forget who the second baseman was, but he was sure-handed, great defender, and a ball went through his legs, and it's like, oh, my God. There it uh, comes. Here it maybe is. We have a, maybe we have a chance. <laughs> um, so and then, it, you know, it's just like so many situations, particularly in a postseason when something like that happens, it snowballs, and then things start going our way. And then the next thing you know, you've got uh, Sid Breams, a winning run on second base. And, you know, uh, Francisco Cabrera comes in, gets the big hit. And, and yeah, you know, you're watching Sid round in third, and you're thinking, my God, could we have a slower guy coming around <laughs> third base right now? I mean, it's not watching a calendar. You know, <laughs> you're like, now, please. Yeah. In fairness to Sid, Sid was a good base runner. He just was not fleet of foot. Right. Um, but thankfully um, – you know, I guess the one knock on Barry Bonds for all uh, his great attributes is he did not have a great throwing arm. Uh, he had to go over and get that ball, throw across his body. So uh, that certainly uh, that certainly helped the situation a little bit. But, you know, it was. You, you know, I mean, it's, you know, you hear people use the term all the time, and, and, and I'm not trying to make it this dramatic, but, you know, you have those moments where your life flashes in front of <laughs> yeah, you where right. everything <laughs> just slows down. That was one of those moments where everything was just like, slow like oh my god Sid come on let's go <laughs> please, um, so please. it was needless needless to say when he slid in uh you know barely ahead of the tag it was uh it was it was crazy because we just there was there was nothing like I said going into that inning that that led us to believe we were going to have that comeback and to to go back really to what you were talking about Rick and I and Tom help me with these years because it's been a year or two the year uh the strike season y'all were having a good year uh, and then you have the strike season, which takes away another opportunity oh, to man. win a, a World Series. And you were involved in that. You were in the representing players. How, how was that, knowing that you you thought, gosh, for me and my team, we really want to get back on the field, but i got to represent the players. I mean, that had to be tough. Yeah, It was hard. I mean, um, you know, truth be told, we were in trouble that year. Uh, I think we were – five or six games back uh, of Montreal. Montreal had a really good team that year. Uh, so we would have had to go on uh, a pretty good run uh, the last two months of the season to catch them. And, and who knows, we may have. But, um, you know, that was probably the one year that we were in a little bit of trouble uh, during that streak. But, um, you know, the whole strike, it was uh, – it was. It was a learning experience for me, um, and, but it was also hard. Um, you know, I got – I got involved as a player rep because I went through a lockout in 1990 and I did not like not knowing what was going on. I didn't like being home uh, waiting for somebody to call me and give me information. I wanted to know what was going on. And, and, you know, truth be told, there were a lot of things in the collective bargaining agreement that affected me as a player that I didn't understand. So I thought, you know, this, this is kind of dumb. I should, I should know this stuff. Um, so that's why I got involved. And then as, the whole thing started to unfold and we ended up on strike. Honestly, it was just, I think, a situation more than anything else where um, whenever we would have a meeting, uh, there would always be a press conference afterwards. And for some reason, it was me and David Cohn uh, that always seemed to end up being the guys in front of the microphone. Um, and it just snowballed. And, and uh, you know, at, at least from, from my standpoint, I ended up being, you know, the National League player rep to some extent, the spokesman um, when, every time we had one of those meetings and a, and a press conference. And it was hard because, you know, I, I, I think it was it definitely became kill the messenger. Mm. Um, you know, people saw me on TV and, and they wouldn't even necessarily know what I was saying, but they would hate me and hate the players. And 
Um, I think the one mistake I made was it was it was pretty evident um, looking back at it that you were either on the player side or you were on the owner side and there really wasn't much in between. And I, I don't think I understood that, but I didn't shy away from any interviews because I thought, hey, if you give me five minutes to explain what we're doing, I can change your mind. Uh, if you don't agree with what we're doing or why we're doing it. Um, and I think that was naive on my part. Um, but I think people who know me know that if I was going to do that, I was going to do it to the best of my ability. I mean, that's just how I work. That's how I operate. Uh, I had an obligation, particularly to my team, uh, to be informed and understand what was going on. Uh, and then secondarily to the rest of the guys in the National League uh, to be able to do the same thing for them. So, um, it, it, like I said, it, it's... It would probably, it would be a great college business course to be able to go do <laughs> something like that. It really would. I mean, it was a tremendous learning experience. Um, I mean, as a kid from, you know, Billerica, Massachusetts, a blue collar town to find myself uh, sitting in the Roosevelt room of the White House, sitting down with President Clinton um, and talking about this thing. I mean, who, who would have thought I would end ended up there? Uh, but I was. And like I say, th those are the things about it that were just uh, tremendous learning experiences. But I, I think I was, in hindsight, a little overzealous in, uh, in trying to convey our message and change people's minds. Tom Glavin is our guest, Major League Baseball Hall of Famer. And we'll talk more when we come back on Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. All right, so Bubba, we, we've talked about on our show, you and I love the free market. Yeah, we do. And, uh, and sometimes I know that, that people think, you know what? Um, I need to prepare uh, for what I think is happening before my very eyes, and 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 we don't want to get you know tell people to get paranoid or be unnecessarily concerned. But some of the things you see going on in our country in our world right now, you just need to be prepared. Uh, that's where my Patriot Supply comes in and says one thing, and you and I talk about this a lot. We're very very much uh, passionate about food. Well, <laughs> if you're worried about uh, any kind of food supply or you know, you know, you see the things going on with anti-business. Uh, we know that this country right now and the administration we have won't hesitate uh, to shut down the economy if they have to. So uh, if food gets to the point where it's difficult to get, uh, why not be prepared? So uh, we recommend stocking up on emergency food right now. Running out of food is, is something you don't need to have to worry about. So don't wait on this. Start building your supply of emergency food that lasts for up to 25 years, and it's there when you need it. My Patriot Supply, America's leader in self-reliance. You just want to be able to be self-reliant if, uh, if the situation calls for it. Uh, they are the only source uh, that, uh, that we would suggest that you use for emergency food planning. So right now we're going to go further than that. We're going to save you $50 off a four-week supply of their delicious meals that give you 2,000-plus calories a day. And that's what, we, that's what you need if you're going to be out there in a bad situation. Saving $50 that's kind of hard to pass up, so go ahead and do it, but supplies are limited. And all you have to do is go to this URL, preparewithrickandbubba.com. Stock up now. Preparewithrickandbubba.com. That's preparewithrickandbubba.com. Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, talking to Hall of Famer Tom Glavin. And, and Tom is actually going to be coming to our home state, for those of you that hear us around the country. Uh, he'll be speaking at the, with the Alabama Baseball Coaches Association. It's their 12th annual first pitch dinner in silent auction. It'll be Monday, uh, May the 3rd, uh, and if you uh, would like to be part of that, you can. Uh, and, of course, you can go to rickandbubba.com. There's a, there's a link there that can tell you how to 
uh, be part of this banquet coming up, benefiting all the different Miracle Leagues uh, that are uh, around our state. And if you've never been part of a Miracle League game or ever been to, uh, to see this, um, I would suggest you do so. Uh, it is a wonderful experience, but they do need uh, help in supporting all the costs that go with that. So make plans to go hear Tom Glavin while seats are still available, and you'll be helping out a great cause. Uh, Tom, uh, when you think about the dominance of, of the era that you were in with the Atlanta Braves, and of course you did also play with the Mets, but you, how does it feel? And maybe you've never I'm, you've never really thought about this, but it, it, when you think about all right, when Bub and I were you know growing up as little kids, you, they were these teams and sports where you felt like for a moment you were part of what everybody considered to be the best group of that time. Uh, you look at the steel curtain for the Pittsburgh Steelers. You, you look at some of the famous Yankee lineups of, of all the history they have. When Bubba and I were growing up, uh, that kind of pseudo all-star team the Oakland A's had in the 70s. When you know, And, and you uh, have been fortunate enough to be considered to be part of what baseball calls one of the greatest pitching rotations of all yep. time. Uh, what? What did you did you realize it in the moment? Is one of those things you look back on. I mean, you knew you were, you guys were pretty good. You'd have to, but did you understand that this was historic? This pitching rotation. Uh, you know, I, I think it's hard to I think it's hard to fully grasp it when you're in it. Um, I think you have an appreciation for it. Um, you know, look, I, I'm I was enough. I was enough of a baseball fan. I wouldn't say I'm a baseball historian, but um, I'm a baseball fan. Um, I'm familiar with uh, the great players that have played the game. So when you're a part of a conversation uh, to where your group, uh, in this instance, our our pitching rotation, and and whether whether it was, you know, some of the years where, where our top four were compared with the four greatest of all time, or just me, Greg, and John. Uh, with some of the best trios of all time. Anytime you're having a conversation or somebody's having a conversation with you, comparing you to, to the best that's ever played, yeah. um, it you you take notice. Um, it's flattering, uh, but I don't think you fully grasp it when you're going through it. It makes you think about it, um, but you don't grasp it fully until you're done playing. I think once you're done playing and you see the body of work, um, you know, it, it, you appreciate, I guess you appreciate it a little bit more. You understand it a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I don't know where we rank. I think we're certainly in the conversation. Um, I will say that I don't think you'll ever see, uh, what Greg, John and I were able to do, uh, for the number of years that we were able to do it. I don't, I don't think you'll see that again, uh, just because of the economics of the game. Um, I, I don't know that, that the Braves, in today's game would have been able to keep the three of us together for as long as we played. I mean, we played together for 10 years. That's a long time. Yeah, it is. Uh, and in today's game with the monies that that's, uh, you know, players are making, it'd be awful difficult to keep three guys of that level together for that long. So, um, you know, I think we know what we did on the field was special, but honestly, I think for us, it was just so much fun doing it. Um, you know, I mean, you talk about being blessed, um, we were blessed that we were able to play together for so long. We were able to play together on so many good teams, but we genuinely liked each other. I mean, we, we had a blast off of the baseball field. Uh, we had as many great memories and as many laps uh, on a golf course somewhere on the road uh, <laughs> as we did at the ballpark. Um, and I think that's rare, you know, for three guys who were doing what they were doing, um, you know, none of us. None of us had an ego towards each other or anything else. I mean, we knew 
we knew what we needed to do. We knew that the expectations of our team uh, being a championship team every year, uh, we, we had to uphold our end of the bargain and, and we knew what that responsibility was. So, you know, none of us wanted to be the weak link in the chain on any given year. Um, you know, John, unfortunately, uh, from time to time had some injuries and, uh, you know, elbow surgeries and things like that, that would take him out of the rotation. But for the most part, uh, when healthy, uh, you know, we went out and lived up to the expectations, which is not easy to do year after year. Um, but I think a lot of it had to do with the drive that we created for one another in a friendly way, you know, because you didn't want to be that wink link. Um, you better work hard. You better be prepared in between starts. You better be prepared when you go out there and pitch. And, um, you know, I've always said it and I won't speak for those guys, but I know it made my job easier being around those guys because there's a lot of pressure that comes with being that number one starter in a rotation. Uh, and when you got two or three other guys in the rotation that could easily fit that bill, um, it makes your job a little bit easier in the sense that you can relax a little bit because you don't feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Like, Hey, when I go out here and pitch, we better win because God knows when we're going to win again. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for us, it was, Hey, if I have a bad game tonight, all right, well, I got Greg coming the next night or I got John coming the next night. And that's why during that, that time we had very few losing streaks uh, of four or five games. Um, and, and that's why I say it, it made it a little bit easier for me because it, it, it allowed me to relax knowing that uh, I didn't have to go out there and be perfect and win a ball game. Uh, because if I had an off night, pretty good chance one of those guys was going to pick me up the next night. Well, I think, too, that may have been the key. Uh, you see other teams where you have multiple stars, and sometimes they get kind of jealous of each other. But it, it looked like you all actually liked each other. And, and like you're saying, peer pressure can be a good thing yeah. if, it, if it makes everybody want to do better. And uh, tell me this, Tom, because y'all all had your own style and you went out there and even though it's a team sport, you were, <laughs> you're on the mound by yourself. D- did y'all talk about hitters a lot? H- how did the mechanics of that group work off the field? Uh, but, uh, but at the, at the ballpark, did y'all share information? Did y'all talk about setting up hitters or how much of that goes on between different pitchers? We did. I mean, I think it was more of it for Greg and I, uh, just simply because John had so much better stuff than Greg and I did that, uh, you know, I'm, I, it'd be hard for me to relate with, hey, John, how do you pitch this guy? Oh, well, you throw 94 and you got the you got the best slider in the game. Well, I don't have either of those. So, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really help me. Uh, but no, I mean, I think we, we had conversations that were extremely helpful. I mean, look, uh, I think from time to time, we got criticized uh, maybe about how much golf we played, uh, but I can promise you it served two purposes. Number one, it was our outlet from the game. Uh, when you're playing 162 games mm. in 182 days, it is a grind of a season. And to be able to get out on the golf course and get away from it um, was very helpful for all of us. But at the same time, we never truly got away with it because most of our conversations on the golf course was about the game, whether it was, a series that we just had or a series that we were getting ready to play or guys that we were talking about, how are you going to get this guy out? How are you going to pitch that guy? Um, you know, Greg and I could relate to how we were going to attack guys. Uh, Smolty, I learned an awful lot from Smolty about um, not being afraid of the fear of failure. I mean, there wasn't a thing in the world that Smolty, if you challenged him to do it, that didn't think he could do it. Uh, and and that was fun to see. And it, and it helped me, you know, it helped me, at times to get past 
uh, you know, not feeling good about what I was doing and the confidence level and all that stuff. But, you know, I can promise you, um, we drove each other in that way, but it was also great being around those guys for so long, because look, there are times where, uh, if you were struggling, uh, as much as you wanted to try and figure things out your, yourself, there were times where maybe you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, and it was valuable to go to those guys during a game and say, Hey, I feel like I'm doing this, or I feel like I'm doing that. Will you watch me this inning? See if you see anything. And whether it was you came in and that, hey, yeah, you're doing that. Uh, you need to fix that. Or, hey, mm -hmm. no, you're not. Uh, which a lot of times was helpful, too, because right. it eliminated yeah. something in your brain you thought you were doing. So uh, to have those guys around and know each other the way we did and, in a sense, have two more pitching coaches sitting on the bench watching you, uh, it, it was a huge luxury. We'll come back. We'll do our final segment uh, with Tom Glavin on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. All right, so Bubba, B-A-M-B-E-E, -E, Bambi. So what does that mean? Well, it, it, you need to find out because if you are, uh, you know, a, a business out there trying to make it happen, sometimes the old HR manager, uh, that, that HR department will just eat you alive. It's very expensive, uh, but you have to have one. On average, though, if you're going to have an HR manager, that's going to be about $70,000 a year, I mean, starting. I mean, that, that's the minimum. So why don't you go to B-A-M-B-E-E, because uh, this is uh, created specifically, like us, Bubba, a small business. Uh, you get a dedicated HR manager, and, and they craft your HR policy, maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. Now, now that you can handle. Uh, you can change uh, HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength by simply making this move. Your dedicated HR manager is available to you by phone, email, real-time chat, you know, I, hey, I need to bring somebody on board. They handle it. Need to let somebody go. That can get real dicey. They handle that. They customize your policies to fit your business, and they help you manage your employees day by day, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, no hidden fees. You can cancel at any time. So why don't you get your free HR audit today, okay? You, you, you worry about the business. Let them worry about all the HR compliance. Go to Bambi.com, that's B-A-M-B-E-E, slash Rick Bubba, right now to get your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash Rick Bubba, B-A-M-B-E-E dot -E com slash Rick and Bubba. All right, Bubba, we're back uh, on Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Tom Glavin is our guest. And, uh, Tom, now that you have – we've talked so much about the inner workings of, of playing. Now, you know, we see the birthday, uh, you know, uh, balloons behind you. You're, you're, you're somebody's dad. Uh, you and and you know, got a twelve year old. A few somebodies, yeah, yeah, a few somebodies. <laughs> but you do have a son now that that is playing, uh, playing college baseball at, at Auburn, uh, and is a lefty. So that that that's good too. So now you go from hey, you're not just you're not just a, a guy who played baseball. You played at a very high level, very high profile. How do you manage? And I know this, and, and, and the, the expectations of a last name. On, on any of your children, especially when they're they're going to try to play the exact same sport that dad played? Um, you know, I think it's just the kind of thing that we, we talked about. Um, you know, I think our, I think my wife and I um, made our kids, uh, I don't want to say if I, if I would say aware, right. um, but maybe cognizant of the fact that, um, you know, our, our last name was meant something and was recognizable. Right. And, and, um, that for them was going to come with good and bad. 
And, you know, there certainly were going to be opportunities because of the last name, but there were also going to be um, naysayers and haters and the whole nine yards. Yeah. And, and I think um, my kids, uh, particularly my middle two boys, um, who played a lot of hockey, a lot of baseball, lacrosse, um, they were both pretty good at it. They were pretty good at letting it roll off their shoulders and just kind of laughing at it. And, and, you know, it's funny because there were a lot of, I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, my kids would go somewhere, um, meet somebody for the first time and how often they would come back, uh, and would say, Hey, how'd it go? Or, you know, whatever. And, and how often the conversation from them would be, well, you know, we met so-and-so and, and they said, you know, they were surprised how nice we were and how down to earth we were. <laughs> And, it, and, and you get that a lot because, yeah. you know, the perception is, oh, this, you know, this kid come, his dad's an athlete, they got money, he's going to be whatever, whatever the perception is. Um, and I think we were just trying to be very cognizant of that. And just like anybody, try to teach your kids manners, right? You're respectful, yeah. you're, uh, you treat people the way you want to be treated, the way you expect to be treated at home. And, and uh, it's worked for them. But, you know, I can tell you, look, especially for my son, uh, Peyton at Auburn. I mean, look, it, it's, it's hard. Um, you know, he gets, uh, he gets grief from time to time. He's told me some funny stories of, yeah. uh, you know, being on the road at some of these college places that can get pretty hostile oh, and, yeah. you know, they're getting on them. <laughs> and then, you know, all of a sudden somebody might recognize his name and then the conversation changes, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, Hey, I'm a big fan of your dad's, you know, whatever. So, uh, so it goes both ways, but I, I you know, I, I think that, like I said, it, it's, you just try to make them understand that, you know, Hey, your dad did something that uh, a lot of people know him for, and therefore they know the name and, and, you know, you just got to be ready for um, more than anything, the negative side, because there are people that, you know, for whatever reason, don't like me or, or whatever, and they'll take it out on them, but they're, they've handled it pretty well. Tom, let me ask you this. Baseball hands out a lot of awards, uh, but during your 14 year run, uh, was there a player in the Braves organization, maybe even a coach, somebody in the in the clubhouse, that you would say would would have been an MVP in your eyes? Maybe didn't get as much press as they needed to, but you thought was a key cog in the wheel that was the Braves. Um, there's probably a lot of guys, you know. Uh, you know, you look back at at all, you know, you look back at all those teams, and I, and I'll say this: one one of the great things about Bobby. Uh, Bobby was really, really good at making everybody understand that everybody on that roster had a role and everybody had to fulfill their role in order for us to do what we wanted to do. Uh, and, and he had a, a knack for making the 25th guy on the roster uh, feel just as, as important as the best guy on the roster. You know, it's not to say that, you know, a guy like Chipper Jones or myself doesn't get afforded some luxuries that maybe some of those guys don't, but it does, it does mean that, hey, you've got a job to do, and when I ask you to do your job, I'm going to expect you to do it. And Bobby was really good at making guys understand that and realize that. So when you look back at you know, a lot of our teams, obviously you have certain guys that, that got publicity, right, because of things that they were doing, and, and deservedly so. But you, know, you take the, uh, you know, the Mark Lemke, the Jeff Blousers of the world. You take uh, a guy like uh, Javi Lopez or Eddie Perez, guys that were catching us every day. You know, guys like that, um, you know, they didn't get the day-to-day -day recognition, but they went out there day-to-day -day and did their job. And, you know, that was important. You know, you, you obviously, like I said, you had your superstars, um, but it was, 
you know, the, I don't want to, I hate to say the bit players, but maybe the, the less popular players, so to speak. Um, you know, those are the guys that really held things together. You knew, you knew what you were going to get out of your superstars most of the time, but it was those other guys, that next layer, uh, that if they were up, able to go out there and do, uh, what you expected out of them, or, or in many cases, maybe in a li- even a little bit more, those are when you had special years and, and, you know, year in and year out, we were able to, we were able to have guys do that. And uh, it was a big reason why we were, we were able to be successful for so long. Well, Tom, thanks for taking time to be with us uh, with uh, probably an unfair question. We've got maybe 40 seconds it, on the top of your head. Who do you think was the top to bottom, the most talented team you're on in those years with the Braves? It's hard to argue with the world series team. 95. Yeah. Uh, I would say 93 was a close second, but a uh, 95 team. Tom, thanks for being with us. I want you to know again, if you want to, in the state of Alabama on uh, on uh, May the 3rd, if you'd like to see Tom Glavin there in person, go to alabca.org. That's Alabama Baseball Coaches Association. It benefits uh, the Miracle League. That's alabca.org. And Tom Glavin, thank you for being with us today, brother. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right, and tell, you, tell your son happy birthday. I will. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot. <laughs> Tom Glavin, and thanks to all of you for joining us on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast.